0: This episode is brought to you by Wise, the account that helps you manage your money all around the world. I lived overseas for many years, and one of the biggest bottlenecks to international living is money transfers. You want to withdraw money from an ATM to access funds from your American bank account, and you don't realize you're getting hit with a $10 charge every single time you do that. Yeah, that did happen to me. So if you're dining in dollars or want to do business in baht, what a WISE account does is let you send, spend, and receive money in different currencies. WISE is the easiest way to connect all of your finances internationally. This goes from a night out at a tapas bar in Spain to buying a property in the Yucatan. So if you're a digital nomad in Bali or want to sell money back to mom, it's simple. And this is all without hidden fees or exchange rate markups. Wise works in over 160 countries, so your money's always at your fingertips. And over half of the transfers get their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this app. Join 16 million customers and learn how a Wise account can work for you by downloading the app or visiting wise.com unplugged. That's wise.com unplugged. One more time, wise.com unplugged. History isn't just a bunch of names and dates and facts. It's the collection of all the stories throughout human history that explain how and why we got here. Welcome to the History Unplugged podcast, where we look at the forgotten, neglected, strange, and even counterfactual stories that made our world what it is. I'm your host, Scott Rank. For about a 100-year period, from the late 18th to late 19th centuries, the most important thing that was happening in Europe and North America were revolutions. This period was called the Age of Revolution. It's noted for a number of states changing from absolutist monarchies to representative governments. Some had written constitutions, and they identified themselves not as under the protection of a king or a dynasty, but as a nation-state. Well, revolutions continued on into the 20th century, but they became much more violent. The leaders of these revolutions claimed that they were freeing their people from their oppressors, whether capitalists, foreign imperialists, or dictators in their own country. They rallied the masses in the name of freedom, but many of these revolutionaries became more tyrannical than those they replaced. Now, a lot has been written about the anatomy of a revolution, perhaps the best-studied event in history is the French Revolution, and intellectuals from Edmund Burke to Crane Britton Crane and Franz Fanon have made the case for what causes a revolution to happen. But something that authors haven't focused on is a character study of the people themselves who led these revolutions. Well, today's guest, Donald Critchlow, has done just that. He's the author of the new book, Revolutionary Monsters, Five Men Who Turned Liberation into Tyranny. He looks at five modern-day revolutionaries who came into power calling for the liberation of the people, only to end up killing millions of people more in the name of this cause. They include Lenin, Mao, Castro, Mugabe, and Ayatollah Khomeini. So we look at the basic questions about the revolutionary personality: what makes a good revolutionary? Maybe the founding fathers, or Mustafa Kemal in Turkey, and someone who ends up triggering the deaths of millions. And examine how these revolutionaries came to envision themselves as prophets of a new age. So we enjoyed this discussion with Donald Critchlow. Donald, welcome to the show.
2: Hey, thank you very much for having me.
0: Well, among historical topics that have been researched most intensely, if I had to put number one on the list, I would argue for the French Revolution. So revolutions as a phenomena are pretty well studied. But I was thinking that there aren't really a lot of books like yours that look specifically as a character study, as the profile of the type of person who would instigate and launch a revolution. So broadly speaking, as we enter the topic of what you wrote about, what is a revolutionary personality?
2: Yeah, so in revolutionary uh, monsters, what I tried to do is capture the narcissistic personalities that led to major revolutions in our 20th century. So I looked specifically at Lenin, Mao, Castro, Mugabe, who was in Zimbabwe, and Khomeini in uh, Iran. And they all shared uh, certain common traits that appear early in their uh, childhood, very narcissistic, self-contained, don't care about other people very much. And they also very early have great ambitions to to become powerful leaguers.
0: Well, it's interesting uh, as we unpack their personality, because I've talked at length on this show about the American Revolution, and that's understood in nearly universal, although less so positive terms in the United States. But to take something a little bit out of left field, my field of study was the Ottoman Empire. And in contemporary Turkey, Autoturk is still the most universally beloved figure in that nation. I don't think you could possibly argue for a second case outside of a religious figure, and he launched the Turkish Revolution and it was successful. so for the people that you look at in your book, the five people that you figured, do you have to have a certain level of narcissism, I suppose, to launch a revolution? Does the cause attract a type to them a revolution, or does a revolution turn them into that person?
2: Well, I think they showed uh, all five of the uh, people I discuss and explore in revolutionary monsters had shared certain uh, traits in common, even as a child, as children. So they they find opportunities in a revolution to choose to gain power by mobilizing the masses and calling for uh, creating the perfect society. All five of them called for the creation of a new perfect society. In that, they were very much like the French revolutionaries. So I think all leaders have some great, small, have uh, share ego, but what was characteristic of these leaders, unlike uh, Agaturk, was there was a there was a monstrous uh, quality to them, even when they were younger, and then when they uh, gain power, the full monster uh, comes out. So your answer, the answer to your question, is that you see these uh, inherent traits or already in children. And then when they gain power in the revolution and create their regimes of tyranny, genocide, incarceration, then uh, the most monstrous side comes out, especially as they uh, uh, continue to try and maintain and do maintain power.
0: Well, before getting back into some of the common characteristics here, let's look into the specific character studies, which is what you spend time doing. So growing chronologically, Let's start with Lenin. Tell me about him.
2: Well, Lenin came from a very uh, wealthy family in Russia, um, and in fact, uh, lesser royalty. And his grandmother owned a a great plantation, if you will, with serfs. So he became, uh, his brother was executed for trying to assassinate the czar. And then uh, Lenin picked up the mantle and became uh, a terrorist. And while in university, he began to read Marxism, but he should be fully understood as a terrorist from the outset. He believed in revolutionary uh, terror. And we can turn to the other four people that I uh, explore, these monsters, if you wish. I should add that revolutionary monsters I kept uh, short, it's concise. And I think it's unusual, not only for talking about the revolutionary uh, personality of these monsters, it's also really a concise history of modern uh, revolutions that we've experienced in the 20th century.
0: All right. Well, yeah, let's uh, look at the others, too. So Mao, what are similarities and differences? I mean, since there's a similar type of social order that they're trying to create in their respective states. So going from Lenin to Mao, what's the example for him?
2: So Mao was, uh, grew up in, uh, often described as a peasant family, but his uh, father was relatively rich and had uh, peasants working for him. His, uh, he too was, like Lenin, was sent to university, and there he encountered uh, Marxism. But Mao was very self-contained and step-by-step step in the, uh, as the Communist Party was being formed in China in the early uh, 1900s, he emerges seeking power. And the, what a what Lenin and Mao, as Castro, Mugabe, and Khomeini all share uh, a similar trait as they rising to power for eliminating their uh, enemies internally within their uh, respective parties. So Mao was exceptionally uh, treacherous. During the forced industrialization of China, once he comes to power, he actually sets Pogos on local party people, on how many people should die and how many people should be executed. He's a, he is a monster, uh, Par Longs.
0: And then I suppose to round out the communist trifecta, uh, what similarities does Castro share and what are differences between him and these other two?
2: Well, Castro, once again, uh, like Mao and Lenin, uh, comes from an elite background. In his case, a very elite background He goes to the best university and the best law schools. His father was a a very wealthy uh, landowner uh, and producer, employing peasants uh, when Castro's growing up. And already when Castro's goes to university, he sees himself as a leader and is already uh, telling people that he plans on becoming the next leader of, of Cuba. So while he's in university, he, like Lenin Mao, begins to read Marxism, but he's less driven, I think, by uh, ideology than he is by power, much like Lenin and Mao, although they all uh, claim to be professed Marxist.
0: I mean, there's definitely advantages for having a revolutionary cause if you're a Marxist, because Marxism is directly baked into the ideology, and it's one of the first necessary steps to have a Marxist revolution in order to overthrow the previous regime so you have to point to that and say well this is this is simply part of the evolutionary step and anyone who else who is a self-professed marxist has implicitly signed up for this as well in a way that if you want to overthrow say a sultanate of the ottoman empire and replace it with a constitutional republic forming a constitutional republic doesn't necessarily require a revolution and many constitutional republics we day did not come about as a result of a revolution so Looking at different personality types, some of which were Marxist, some of which were not Marxist, is there something different about a Marxist revolutionary than another type of revolutionary?
2: Yes, I think uh, one way of looking at uh, revolutionaries is to kind of divide them between political revolutionaries who want political change, which often means seeking colonial independence or creating your own nation. But they're seeking basically the creation of representative government. And that's what our founding uh, fathers in this nation saw. It was a political revolution. The other category of revolution in which the, my five monsters fall in, in revolutionary monsters, seek social revolution. They seek the complete social equality, just not a change in the political system, but a change in the uh, social system, which means eliminating the, what they see as the class enemies. It begins with the rich, but very uh, quickly turns into their enemies, class enemies within their own parties. So there's a far, there's a big difference between political revolutions and social revolutions. And it's those who call for complete equality in these revolutions that leads to great human uh, travesties and tragedy. It's apparent that what we've seen. In China, it was seventy million, at least seventy million uh, people dying under the uh, Maoist uh, regime. We were going to turn to Mugabe in Africa. He too sees himself as a Marxist, but when he comes to power, he uses North Korean uh, trained troops to attack his rival tribe, and they complete genocide. They starve the uh, people. They send troops in to. Uh, Uh, that have been North Korean trained to burn villages and rape women. So, similar trait. Now, Khomeini is kind of a different personality, but he too comes from a wealthy family, educated. He doesn't reveal, at first, as he's a Muslim cleric, his uh, seeking power. But once the uh, opposition begins to emerge, he very carefully uh, consolidates opposition to the Shah both Islamic Marxist and fundamentalist, and is able to uh, seize power. But there should be no doubt that he's a monster the last month before his death, as I described. He issued an order that all political prisoners should be killed. So 30, at least 30,000 Iranian political prisoners were executed, often slowly hung for hours. Khomeini had no problem with this. He gave the order.
0: Hey everyone, Scott here. We're going to take a very short break for
1: a word from our sponsors.
2: Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family.
0: VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Is there something in common that you see with them of what makes them monstrous or however you care to describe them? Is it that they all have narcissistic personality disorder or sociopathy that makes them indifferent to the suffering of others. Is it because of the nature of their utopian cause that they have a consequentialist framework and the ends justify the means? So this is acceptable for the purpose of what it is I'm trying to do. So were there any common factors that you thought made them more brutal than other revolutionaries?
2: Very good question. Uh, and I found in uh, each of these uh, monsters that there was a a complete disregard for uh, human life. It was all for the uh, creation of a utopia, there's no doubt. But ultimately, it comes about uh, maintaining their own power, as they see, for achieving this uh, utopia. It should be noted that Mao actually uh, urged a nuclear war. He said it would cost millions of Chinese lives they would uh, emerge as a dominant uh, force. Uh, similarly, uh, Castro, as I described in Revolutionary Monsters, actually urged the uh, Soviet Union to get involved during this Cuban Missile Crisis in a nuclear uh, war with the United States. I mean, when you're, when you're talking and urging millions and millions of human deaths, it shows more than a narcissistic personality. It shows, uh, or just utopian dreams. It shows uh, kind of the monster that is found within these within these men. It should be pointed out, as I discussed with Che Guevara, and there were re- many reports and memoirs that Che Guevara actually enjoyed killing. I think he should be considered uh, a sociopath, and we should. Uh, All those uh, young folks who are walking around with Che Guevara t-shirts and sweatshirts and badges might as well be wearing uh, Ted Bundy uh, t-shirts.
0: I think looking at people like this, it always begs the question of how are they so successful at what they did? Because launching and leading a revolution and harnessing energies of people who are often very radical and hard to lead takes a lot of persuasion, leadership, charisma, And in the past, I looked at insane rulers, and I'm not using that word glibly talking about people with mental illness. I mean, the legal definition of the word insane that cannot distinguish fact from reality, yet they were able to rule an empire or a nation state for sometimes a considerable length of time, even when they didn't have their full mental faculties at their disposal. And you wonder, how did they do this? So I suppose what's the positive take of these different figures that they had to have some sort of reservoir of talent to do what they did to get as far as they did get. So how did they do it?
2: Yeah, they were uh, talented men in their uh, evil ways. But I think they need to, they might not have necessarily come to power without a couple uh, historical forces. First of all, in each of these societies, bad ideas begin to uh, creep in among the youth and the intelligentsia. And so Marxism begins to seep in By the 1860s, 70s in Russia, by the turn of the century in China, by 1911, most of the intellectual students are reading Marxism, anti colonialism is a powerful force. So you get bad ideas beginning to lay the groundwork among the uh, young and the intelligentsia, and sometimes among the elites. And then the second thing that happens, I think, in each of these revolutions that allow these monsters to emerge is a ruling class or elite class that has really begun to lose confidence in its own regime and lost and loses the sense of foundational uh, principles, whatever those principles were within their uh, society. And they see themselves and they understand that they've just become corrupt and just concerned about power and greed. And so when they're confronted with revolutions, They're actually uh, they're all ready for the uh, fall. So in these uh, circumstances, when you get social uh, discord, these powerful men or leaders are able to come together either because they've taken control of their parties or their charismatic figures already within their within uh, certain segments of society.
0: I wonder if you can see similar people like this in the United States that because of constitutional limits, they can't go as far. But there are numerous senators or governors or presidents you could lift off that list off that have all the characteristics of narcissism, of grandstanding, showmanship, and some of the stories are amusing, like a Huey Long in uh Louisiana, who was a beloved populist, but He had at least limits on his power that he could execute. What if he didn't have those limits? Or Woodrow Wilson, who earnestly and honestly believed he was going to entirely remake the world order according to 20th century progressivism and essentially end war. So do you think there are figures like this in the United States that were but for certain constitutional guardrails would go in a similar path? Hey, everyone. Scott here. One more brief word from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Calatrin. Text the word "unplug" to 30605 and I'll send you a link to a wonderful product that can help you finally succeed in shedding that extra weight. I took Calatrin for several weeks last year and I felt great in several ways. I felt stronger. My workouts felt easier. I slept better. I was noticeably trimmer. There was no downside. Text the word "unplug" to 30605 right now to see this week's special offer on Calatrin. Calatrin contains collagen, the most abundant protein naturally occurring in the human body, which decreases as we age. Taking Caltrin promotes better sleep, more energy, less joint pain, and best of all, weight loss. Caltrin has an 86% success rate with their 90 day supply, and this week, take advantage of my special offer. Buy the 90 day supply and get an extra month free plus free shipping. Ordering is easy. Just text the word unplugged to 30605, and I'll send you a link to the special offer. Again, text unplugged to 30605.
2: Of course, and I think our uh, founding fathers, who wrote the Constitution, understood that power corrupts, and power, uh, absolute power, corrupts absolutely. And so they tried to structure, and they did structure a constitutional order that tried to constrain power, but through separation of branches of government, a federalist system, representative bodies, the Senate and the, and the House. And also a weak uh, executive. I don't think we're going to see a political social revolution in this country. Of course, these things are always unexpected, but I think we're pretty safe for right now. But what you do see, I think, in our society right now is bad ideas begin to really creep in to the younger people. One of the things that inspired me to write Revolutionary Monsters is when I saw a poll. That said that the majority of young people uh, support uh, socialism. Then I saw another poll, and this is uh, really uh, quite disturbing, at least from my perspective, and I'm sure many other uh, perspectives. 20% of young people believe that private property should be abolished and it should be, uh, all property should be owned by the state. So these are bad ideas beginning to. Seep in. And now we also have a ruling elite that actually is dismissing our foundational principles. They say that we're, uh, they've made an argument through uh, media corporations, entertainment, and now a major political party that we're a systemic racist country. And the Constitution was a social construction that only was protecting slavery. So these, it's just, so this is a different kind of progressive movement than, than Huey Long or Woodrow Wilson. They believed in the foundational principles of this nation. The left, anti-war left, civil rights left at the 60s and 70s, basically were arguing that America wasn't living up to its principles, but they believed in those principles. Today, we have large numbers of young people as well as leaders of major institutions That say they're dismissing these foundational principles and they kind of want to begin with a year zero, much like the French revolutionaries who also claimed they were representing the public interest. The terror, as you know, the terrorists, the French revolution turned to terror through the committee of public safety. (laughs) As they guillotine people, it was the committee for public safety doing this. So.
0: Yeah. So what do you think is the most effective way to channel the energies of someone like this who exists in a society that they become a cable news pundit or a nonprofit worker, or I don't know, encouraged to embrace religion. So maybe that their belief in a utopia can be channeled toward having some sort of into a metaphysical supernatural reality rather than channeling, I don't know, religious motivations to trying to recreate a world order that ends up being more destructive since a lot of the Anthropologists, I we mean, might talk about different religious language being weaved into talking about the construction of the state, especially in utopian ideals. So what do you think are the best ways to, to channel energies like this, of somebody like this in society?
2: Well, I think we have, I'm uh, not worried about, look, there's always going to be uh, monsters in our societies. The best, but we have a fight going on and a battle of ideas, and we see basically uh, higher education becoming more and more propagandistic. And let me just say that your shows are important because you, you allow a discussion of history, the gray areas and the nuances of history. History tends not to be all black or white. But the other day in uh, class, we were having a discussion of the difference between political and social uh, revolutions. And one of the students, uh, in fact, a history major, third year, had never heard uh, that Poland had been a communist country. He had never heard of the fall of the Berlin Wall. So it wasn't that he wasn't being taught history. He was being taught a history that's rather myopic, narrow. It's just identity theory, uh, which it's a focus on identity, often with recrimination, uh, as it's taught, with a political agenda. And they're not learning about the fall of the Berlin uh, Wall. I mean, so we have and so he's a product of kind of the K uh, through 12 education that gets reinforced in, uh, in history, humanities and social science courses in the university. So we should be less concerned about the kind of individual monsters but more concerned about the environment that allows these monsters to become uh, manifest with great human tragedy and consequences.
0: All right. Well, understanding these trends, looking at particular case studies and then also personality profiles and seeing how it's fleshed out, I think is a great way to delve into this type of story. So for listeners who want to check out more, the name of the book is Revolutionary Monsters, Five Men Who Turn Liberation into Tyranny. Donald, thank you for joining us.
2: Hey, thank you very much. For, uh, and keep up your good work. It's important. You should never forget that. Oh,
0: thank you. All right. That is it for today. If you would like to see show notes for this episode, along with all my others, go to ParthenonPodcast.com. That's the name of the podcast network that I'm a part of, along with James Early's Key Battles of American History, Steve Guerra's Beyond the Big Screen in History of the Papacy, and other great history shows as well. If you'd like to support History Unplugged, the two easiest ways to do so are to subscribe to the show on the podcast player of your choice and leave a review. The second way is to join our membership program. And if you do so, you'll get completely ad-free episodes of the entire back catalog, which is 600 episodes and growing. Just go to patreon.com slash unplugged. Thanks for listening and see you next time.